On behalf of Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. To remain standing and take your Bibles and turn one more time to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, we began looking at this passage uh, last Sunday, and we will complete it this morning. So 2 Timothy chapter 3, our text, verses 1 through 5, and if you'll follow along as I read our text, 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning now in verse 1. But understand this. That in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. Well, for a number of weeks, we looked at passages from both the Old and New Testaments answering the question, what is happening in America or what's wrong with America? But we cannot talk about what's happening in America without talking about what's happening in the church because it's not only our nation that's in a disastrous state, and the church in this country is also in a grievous, appalling state. And in the visible professing church today, we see greater confusion, apostasy, moral decay, and and tolerance for things that are clearly unbiblical than ever before. And consequently, much of the church in this country is powerless and weak and has very little, if any, influence upon the culture. And all we have to do is look around at the culture to understand that. And this is because so much of the world has crept into the church that you can barely tell them apart. Churches across the country are rapidly declining as ideas and activities that are morally and biblically wrong are being accepted, even promoted and encouraged by church leaders. False teachers and false teaching of all sorts and varieties abound. Some churches are supporting Marxist organizations like Black Lives Matter. Others are accepting Marxist ideologies such as critical race theory and intersectionality. Others are buying into the social justice movement, becoming woke, so to speak, becoming woke to white privilege, social injustice, systemic racism, which they say not only infects this country and all of its institutions, but the church as well. And the church today prides itself on tolerance of every unbiblical standard of righteousness and truth that has ever crept into the church. Tolerance today is seen as the great virtue. And certainly there is tolerance in a right and good sense, but not when it is tolerance of false teaching and every unbiblical standard of righteousness and truth that the enemy has put out there. And this is not pessimistic, not at all. This is simply the reality of living in the last days. And we shouldn't be surprised by what's going on, because as Paul told Timothy in verse 13 of chapter 3, evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. 
And it isn't going to get easier. It's going to get worse. And Paul wanted Timothy to understand that and be prepared for it. And we're to understand this and be prepared for it as well. In chapter 3, verse 1, which we looked at last week, Paul gives Timothy and us a real good dose of reality as he warns, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. But in this verse, Paul admonishes Timothy and us to understand and, and to realize, I mean, to know that there will be times, in other words, periods of time, epochs, eras in the last days, and that, which speaks of that period of time between Christ's first and second coming, and these times will be both painful and perilous, hard to endure, and hard to cope with. Timothy was living in such days, and so are we. And Paul says, know it. Understand it. In the last days, the church must expect times of great difficulty. And Paul tells us why in the first words of verse 2. Look at verse 2. He says, for people will be. For people. You want to know why in the last days times will be difficult and perilous? You want to know why the visible church in this country is in such a mess? People. It is sinful, fallen people who are responsible for the times of difficulty which the church must endure. Fallen people. And of course, behind it all is Satan, the enemy of our souls, but on the human level, it is people. And as we learned last week, you know, we're living in the last days. These days are going to include times or seasons of great difficulty and peril as a result of the activities of sinful people. And the closer we get to the second return of Christ, they're only going to intensify. They're going to grow worse and worse. And now as we come to verses 2 to 4, Paul describes the characteristics of these people. And understand as we read through this list of sinful characteristics that Paul is not speaking about atheists or those who would never darken the door of a church. He is not speaking of mankind in general or the unsaved world. This is a description of professed Christians within the church. Some are even church leaders. They are in the church, but they are not in Christ. They profess Christ, but they do not possess Christ. And there have always been false believers in the church. There have always been tares among the wheat, and there always will be. But in the last days, there will be a proliferation of men and women who profess Christ, but their lives, their words, and their conduct prove otherwise. They are false believers. They are apostates. Now, it's easy to read this list and think, man, I know somebody that exactly fits this description. Or, you know, I, I've read about guys like this, you know, shame on them. But I'm sure Paul wanted Timothy, and he would want us to do some personal soul-searching as we read this list. And I think Paul would have us to ask, Lord, is it I? Lord, could I be drifting into holding a form of godliness, but be denying its power to transform my heart and life? Lord, could I be drifting off into lukewarmness so that my conduct is not reflecting the, the, the truth and the beauty of the gospel? 
Lord, are, are these things present in my life? In verses 2 to 4, Paul lists 18 characteristics that will mark men and women who profess Christ, but who in reality have corrupted and will continue to corrupt the church until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Look at verse, back at verse 2. And it's significant that the first two characteristics and the last one, uh, these three are about love that is misdirected. Notice the first characteristic in verse 2. For people will be lovers of what? Self. Lovers of self. The word translated lovers of self occurs only here in the New Testament. It literally means loving oneself. It, it means selfish. It means intent on one's own interests or concerns solely with one's own desires, needs, or interests. And so Paul tells us that the number one thing that will characterize many in the church who profess to be Christians is loving self. They will be selfish, self-centered, only concerned for their own desires, needs, and interests. And something we need to understand that in self-love, under the guise of Christianity, the Lord Jesus is not explicitly denied. Oh, not at all. He is just effectively displaced. Love of God has been replaced by love of self. And we see this by reading the opening and closing characteristics together. People will be lovers of self rather than lovers of God. And this is the subtle deception of narcissism and the excessive love of self. Uh, Phillips translates it utterly self-centered. Instead of being first and foremost lovers of God, they are lovers of self. And my friends, if there, is ever, if there ever was a narcissistic age, if there ever was an age that was self-preoccupied and think and thinks God and the world exist for their own personal benefit and pleasure, it is ours. And so it is no accident that self-love is first, because self-love is the basic sin of humanity. It is idolatry. It leads the list because it is the root cause of everything else on the list. It was first from Satan's, And then from Adam and Eve's love of themselves over God and from the similar self-love of their descendants that every other sin has come. Self-love has always been associated with worldliness and was never taught as a doctrinal tenet of the church. Even in its most corrupt periods in the past, the church universally acknowledged self-love to be the sin that it is. And you know that it was not until the late 20th century that the concept of self-love as a positive characteristic found its way into the church, and the church bought it hook, line, and sinker. Jesus said in Matthew 22, verses 37 to 39, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The statement, love your neighbor as yourself, is not a command to love yourself, not by any stretch of the imagination. And we laugh, but there are people that teach that. 
it is natural and normal to love yourself. That's our default position. There is no lack of self-love in our world. The command to love your neighbor as yourself is essentially telling us to treat other people as well as we treat ourselves because we all know how much we love and care for ourselves and how well we treat ourselves. In Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan, there was only one who showed himself to be a true neighbor to the man in need, and of course that was the Samaritan. There were two others, a priest and a Levite, who refused to help the man in need. And their failure to show love to the injured man was not the result of loving themselves too little. Rather, it was a result of loving themselves too much and therefore putting their interest first. The Samaritan showed true love. The Samaritan gave of his time, resources, and money with no regard for himself. His focus was outward and not inward. And Jesus presented this story as an illustration of what it means to love one's neighbor as oneself. We are not to love ourselves. We are to take our eyes off of ourselves and care for others. Listen, Christian maturity demands it. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of the others. Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. And according to this passage, loving others requires humility, a valuing of others, and a conscious effort to put others' interests first. And anything less than this is selfish and vain and falls short of the standard of Christ. God commands us to love him supremely and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And then in John 13, Jesus actually upped the ante because he tells us that as believers, we are to love one another within the body of Christ in the same way that Christ has loved us. And how did he love us? Sacrificed his life. And so John is telling us that we're to love one another in the church as Christ loved us. In other words, there's no sacrifice that we should not be willing to make for one another. Well, what a contrast self-love is to the sacrificial love that God requires of all who follow him. Loved ones, Scripture never, underline that word never, Scripture never commands us to love ourselves because it assumes we already do. In fact, people in their unregenerate condition love themselves too much, and that is precisely the problem. Someone who loves themselves, someone who is focused upon themselves all the time is one of the most miserable people you will ever meet. In 2 Corinthians 5.15, Paul wrote, he, he died, Christ died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised. I mean, Scripture continually calls us to humble ourselves, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, to seek the interest of others over ourselves, and not to think too highly of ourselves, which is our innate tendency. But we are never told to love ourselves. Rather, as Jesus said, if anyone wants to become my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. 
For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and because of the gospel will save it. For what benefit is it for a person to gain the whole world yet forfeit his life? And so at the top of the list of sinful characteristics that will mark the lives of many in the church who profess to be Christians in the last days is love of self. Love of self. And these lovers of self are most dangerous when they are inside the walls of the church. Just a side note, every one of the characteristics Paul goes on to name is a result, uh, as I've already said, of being a lover of self. Because when a person is number one to himself, when he himself is the be-all and end-all of his existence, then we should not be surprised one bit at the depths of evil this person is capable of. And so keep that in mind as we study these terms. I mean, the people who do these things are merely people in love with themselves. And some of these we're going to move through uh, pretty quick or very quickly because uh, we've covered a number of them in Romans chapter 1. So first of all, lovers of self. And since self-love has replaced love for God and the things of God, It leads to many other sins, the first of which, Paul tells us, is love of money. Paul says people will be lovers of money. Those who love self, whose primary concern is their own desires, will love the money which can supply those desires. I mean, it's money that enables them to gratify and indulge themselves. The word translated lovers of money, literally money-loving, is used only here in the New Testament. And Jesus spoke of this as a problem of certain Pharisees who were lovers of money and were ridiculing Jesus, but our Lord then went on to make it very clear that people cannot serve both God and money. The Apostle Paul saw love of money as one of man's major besetting sins. And he said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.10, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. Not, Not money itself, but the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. While the Bible commands husbands to provide adequately for the needs of their families, and while the Bible tells us that God richly provides us with everything to enjoy, it also warns us not to set our hope on earthly riches and about the danger of loving money. Jesus said in Luke 12, 15, Watch out and guard yourself from all types of greed, because one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And that warning is as timely now as it it, uh, was in Jesus and Paul's day. Paul tells Timothy that in the church there will be people who love money, but it buys them and allows them to do, and they'll covet more and more of it and, and the things it buys. Their eyes and hearts will be focused upon money instead of God. They, they will indulge and hoard instead of seeking to meet the desperate needs that are all around them. But that's not God's plan, is it? No, God's plan is that we love him supremely, worship him, love one another, use the things that he has given us to provide for ourselves and our families and to delight in using our money to support the work of God and the needs around us to the point of sacrifice. And I wonder how much sacrifice there is in the church today. And I'm not just talking about this church. I'm talking about the church in this country. 
And I wonder if any among us has ever given to the point of sacrifice, meaning you denied yourself something uh, to help someone else. Because that's what we're called to do. We're to be lovers of God, and out of the overflow of our love for God, we're to live lives of humility, integrity, and generosity. Well, how do you know if you're a lover of money? Well, let me ask you something. How do you handle your money? And this will tell you where your heart is. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also, Jesus said. And conversely, where your heart is, there will be your treasure also. Lovers of self, lovers of money, and then he says proud. This speaks of vocalizing your supposed superiority and bragging. This is the braggart who uh, brags about what they possess and what they think they know, who exaggerate their abilities, their accomplishments, their talents, their reputations. I mean, they're always the heroes of their own stories. Arrogant, number four. Also translated haughty. This is the person characterized by an unwarranted sense of self-importance out of overbearing pride. It refers to those who raise themselves up above others. It refers to a man who has a certain contempt for everyone except himself. And the word is used three times in Scripture when it says that God opposes the proud. And then abusive. And remember, this is in the church. Abusive. Probably not the best translation because the word actually means blasphemous. It means speaking evil of God and men. So in other words, the uh, this person's speech is abusive, they're foul-mouthed, contemptuous, and insulting. Uh, because they have such an inflated opinion of themselves, they look down with contempt upon others and speak evil of them. Disobedient to parents, we talked about this uh, in Romans 1. Such an issue today. I mean, we are seeing today the most rebellious generation known to man. There's no respect for authority at all, whether it's authority in the home, in the church, in society. No respect for any authority, and it all begins in the home. And a lack of discipline in the home, a lack of spiritual instruction, along with uh, the sinful teaching of self-love, is absolutely going to lead to disobedience. Children will disrespect, disobey, and rebel or children who will disrespect, disobey, and rebel against their parents whom God has given them to be their, the spiritual authority in their lives while they're under their roof. And please, parents, remember that. You're not their friend. That comes when they're adults and out of the home. You're there to be their mom and dad, to be their spiritual leader, to instruct them, to lead them, to guide them. But if they will disrespect, disobey, and rebel against their parents. They will reject the authority of everyone else in society that's been put there by God for the, for the sake of order and structure and well-being. But one man said it should be no surprise that a generation whose natural sinful self-love has been reinforced and justified by society is now undermining the family, the church, and the permissive society that has misguided it. Next is ungrateful. It's really self-explanatory. Describes the ingratitude that results from taking everything for granted. It's a you owe to you owe it to me attitude. You know they're unappreciative of anything done for their benefit because most people feel they deserve and are entitled to even more than they have, and so they feel no need of being grateful. 
So Paul is telling us in the last days, the church is going to be full of ungrateful people that complain about anything and everything. Like Israel in the wilderness, they will be grumblers and complainers. Next is unholy. This word was used of someone who refused to bury a dead body or someone who committed incest. It carries the, it carries the idea of gross indecency. The unholy person is driven by self-love to gratify his lusts and passions of whatever sort as fully as possible with absolutely no thought to modesty, decency, purity, or personal reputation. Next, the beginning of verse 3 is heartless. It can also be translated unloving. So here, here is more misdirected love. This word means to be without natural affection. You know, it is not natural for people to love God or the things and the people of God, but it is natural for them to love their own families. But the person who loves himself is lacking or even without common or natural affection for those who should be the dearest to him or her. I mean, his primary interest in them is what he believes they can do for him. I mean, to be heartless is to be hard-hearted, unfeeling, and unloving. There will be a lack of natural affection in the church. Next is unappeasable. This is number 10. Could be translated irreconcilable. This is those who, uh, these are those who refuse to change no matter how desperate their own situation becomes, much less the situations of those they should care about. As far as they are concerned, there is no compromise, no reconciliation. Their self-love is so extreme and their ego so massive that absolutely nothing matters except doing what they please. They are determined to have their own way regardless of the consequences, even to the point of knowingly destroying their own lives and the lives of their families. It exists in the church today. Next is slanderous or malicious gossip. This is the Greek word diabolos, from which we get the word devil. The word literally means devils. These are people who imitate the devil in slandering others. They make it a point of harming others, damaging reputations and destroying lives uh, with their slanderous words and lies and innuendos. Blinded by self-love, malicious gossips do the very work of the devil, the chief of all slanderers. So I guess you could say like father, like son, or like father, like daughter. In the last days, the church will be full of malicious gossips and backbiting because when self is on the throne, it naturally leads to putting down others that you might exalt yourself. Next is without self-control. One of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5 is self-control. and In contrast, these people are without the Spirit, and, and so therefore they cannot control themselves. They are still enslaved to their own sinful desires and longings. They cannot and will not break free of them. They have no self-control or power to discipline themselves. They are enslaved to their own cravings, given over to pleasure and indulgence, whether it's for food, alcohol, tobacco, overeating, oversleeping, video games, social media, shopping, sexual cravings, pornography, leisure, etc., etc., etc. They have no inhibitions or shame. They don't care about what people think or about what happens to them because of what they do. They actually lack the power to discipline themselves, and they're controlled by their desires and their passions. Next is brutal. It means feral 
or fierce, savage, and untamed like wild animals who by nature attack enemies and tear them in pieces. And isn't that great? Self-love that is not checked makes a person insensitive, malicious, and eventually brutal. And people will be controlled by their baser instincts. I mean, we're seeing a trend in this direction in our society. I mean, people are acting and living like wild animals, just tearing one another in part in order to gain or to protect their own desires. And this is the exact opposite of the gentleness called for in the servant of the Lord in in 2 Timothy 2.24. And genuine uh, or gentleness... Genuine godliness has has power which produces gentleness. And the lack of this power makes people rough, harsh, and, and cruel, even brutal. Number 14 is not loving good. So here again is another misdirected love. Not loving good draws us back to the beginning of the list. People who love themselves and their own interests are characterized by an absence of love for, for things good. These people don't necessarily care to be in the presence of good things and good people because they have no love for anything spiritually beneficial. And the most damaging place for them to be is in the walls, within the walls of the church. They love what should be hated and hate what should be loved. Ungodly entertainment, ideologies, and endeavors they will love, but the things of God, His Word, worship, preaching, serving, giving, and righteousness they will hate the very least, neglect. Next, in the first part, of, uh, in verse 4, is treacherous. This word means a traitor or a betrayer. This is the word used of Judas who betrayed Jesus. It refers to someone who betrays loyalty or a trust in order to further their own interests. Just like Judas, they're willing to sell anyone out for their own interests. Lovers of self eventually become traitors, even turning against their own families and friends. They can't be trusted because they lie, they break their promises whenever doing so helps them get their own way. Basically, they possess no loyalty whatsoever except to themselves. And the only commitment they will keep is to their pursuit of happiness. And so as a result, we see adultery and divorce and church splits and church hopping. These things will be commonplace. And treachery becomes natural to a person who loves themselves, loves money, who is proud, arrogant, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, slanderous, who has no self-control, who is brutal and doesn't love good. Next is reckless. This is someone who is self-willed, someone who is rash, reckless, someone who plunges ahead, acting without careful, reasonable thought for others or care for the possible consequences. These people are swept along by passions and and impulses to such an extent that they're totally unable to think sensibly. And so they act foolishly and carelessly, doing whatever they want without consideration of others, completely unconcerned about the consequences and or the danger for themselves or others. All that matters to them is self and self-expression. They'll say things like, well, I just had to be true to myself as if that justifies any number of evils. They're determined to have their own way regardless of advice to the contrary. Next is swollen with conceit. 
This word means to wrap in smoke. In other words, it means to puff up with pride. It speaks of being haughty, conceited, thinking of themselves more highly than they ought. It it speaks of those who are intoxicated with an exaggerated sense of their own self-importance and self-worth. They are so blinded by pride and conceit, no one can tell them anything because they know it all. And these people are utterly selfish. And this really brings us full circle back to the root of it all, lovers of self. John Lennon, the former Beatle, exemplified this attitude with this brash statement. Some of you will remember it. He said, Christianity will go. It will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue about that. I'm right, and I will be proved right. We, speaking of the Beatles, we're more popular than Jesus now. Talk about swollen with conceit and thinking more highly of yourself than you are. And sadly and tragically, John Lennon was shot and killed, and as far as we know, he died in his sin without a relationship with Christ. And all that John Lennon ever accomplished will be turned into a wisp of smoke, just ash. But Christianity will continue to flourish until the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Verse 18, the last one. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Lovers of pleasure is the translation of two Greek words from which we get our English word hedonism. Paul says they are lovers of pleasure. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. This word translated lovers of pleasure appears nowhere else in the New Testament and and neither does the Greek word translated lovers of God. But Paul says, first of all, they're lovers of pleasure. This speaks of those who are preoccupied with pleasing themselves, those who are given over to pleasure or controlled by pleasure. You know, Pascal once wrote that in every man's heart is a God-shaped vacuum, yet men will continue to fill this vacuum with the God called pleasure. So the list ends as it began with those whose love has become so misdirected that they can only think of their own desires and pleasures. And this is what their life is centered upon. This is the focus and the priority of their life. The pleasure here is all types of pleasure. Be it the desire for comfort, fine food, fine wine, sports, leisure, travel, sexual satisfaction, you know, whatever brings one, whatever brings one pleasure. You know, that, that's the priority in their life. They love pleasure, and everything else takes second place to that. Well, we live in a pleasure-mad society. I mean, think about it. For most people, the number one priority in life is pleasure in its many different forms. I mean, they, they live for the weekend and for their pleasure. Or they live for the next time they can leave town for an extended period of time. You know, pleasure is the priority in their life. That's what their life revolves around. Leisure travelers spent a total of $792 billion in 2019. That's here in the United States. In 2019, the sale of video games brought brought in close to $39 billion in revenue in the U.S. alone. 
Music and video streaming services brought in $32.3 billion in revenue in 2020. Not that any of those things is wrong. But when it displaces God, it becomes very wrong. Now, does a Christian have to decide between pleasure and God? Well, of course not. And, and I hope you don't think that. I mean, God has given us richly all things to enjoy. And the person who trusts in God recognizes that God's good gifts not only meet our needs, but are also for our enjoyment. I mean, God is not opposed to pleasure. I mean, some people imagine God as a cruel taskmaster opposed to, to all fun or pleasure, and to them, he's, he's the God of all seriousness or the God of rules, but that's not an accurate or biblical picture of God. I mean, God created us with the ability to experience pleasure, and several scriptures speak of our delight and pleasure. For example, Psalm 16, Proverbs 17, Proverbs 15. In the Bible, we see that God himself takes pleasure in things. I mean, Scripture speaks of having joy. Philippians and the Psalms are, are two places where we see plenty of it. God's design of the human body reveals that pleasure is part of his plan. I mean, taste buds and other sensory organs are proof that God is not opposed to pleasure. Right? I mean, why does good food taste so good? Right? Why is the scent of roses pleasing? Why is a back massage enjoyable? Well, because God wanted it that way. Pleasure was God's idea, not ours. We've just perverted it. Like every other good gift God has given us. You know, sometimes we think that when Christians talk about pleasure or joy, they mean being joyful and, and reading their Bibles, meditating or, or serving. And, and we certainly do take pleasure, great pleasure in those things, but not to the exclusion of other activities. I mean, God also created us for fellowship with others and for recreation. We were made to delight in being his children and using the talents he bestows and in participating in the pleasures that he offers. But we must also distinguish between the different types of pleasures in this world. Because we live in a fallen world where God's best for us is often perverted. And just because society deems uh, an activity pleasurable doesn't mean that it's pleasing to God or healthy for us or conducive to long-term pleasure because the pleasures of sin are fleeting. The pleasures of sin are false friends that leave us empty and longing and, and often devastated. It's also important to realize that according to Scripture, the purpose of our lives, the purpose of our existence is not pleasure. Hedonism is a false philosophy. We were created to delight in God and to accept with gratitude the good things which he provides. And more importantly, we were created to have a relationship with God, to know him, become like him, to serve him, and be useful to him. And so God is not opposed to pleasure. But he is absolutely opposed to pleasure taking over his place in our lives. You know, as believers, we're sometimes called to give up the pleasure of the moment in order to invest in the greater pleasure of God's kingdom. And listen, we won't be disappointed. For those who seek him and his righteousness, God has eternal pleasures in store. 
And so pleasure is not the problem. The problem is when people allow pleasure to become the priority in their lives and, and take over the place that only belongs to God. And that was, that was the problem with the professed believers in the church Paul is writing about here. They were lovers of pleasure, not more than God. That's not what it says, is it? Look at the verse. Lovers of pleasure rather or instead of God. And so personal, personal pleasure is paramount. It's the priority in their loves. They love self, therefore they love money, and they love pleasure rather than God. They, they have their priorities precisely backwards. God is not the priority in their thinking or their living. As is true with anyone who is self-centered. These people ignore the claims of God and, and live their life in pursuit of selfish desires that gratify the flesh. They love their own pleasures and are totally controlled by them. And they are willing to make any sacrifice necessary for temporal pleasures, but are unwilling to give up anything. They put devotion to the self-satisfaction they receive from their pleasure, whatever it may be, above devotion to God. Love for God is not a controlling motive in their lives because they have no real love for God in their hearts. So that begs the question, what are our priorities today? For an ever-growing number of people in the church, church, the corporate worship of God's people, along with the church's other corporate gatherings and activities, are no longer a priority. They take the time, energy, and finances God has blessed them with, and they enjoy them. But the problem is they do so to the neglect of God and the things of God. But we're not to live for pleasure. That's not to be the priority in our lives. We're, we're not to put pleasure or anything else for that matter before God and the things of God. And listen, most people in church don't think that they are guilty of loving themselves or loving money or lovers of pleasure. I mean, most people in church don't think that of themselves. And so that's why God has given us his word to jerk us back to reality. So let me ask you, what are your priorities? What is it that your life is centered upon or around? Is it God and the things of God? Is it the corporate gathering of God's people? You know, do you set your schedule and your family's schedule around the things of God? Or are the things of God an afterthought which only happen if you have nothing else to do. And here's a challenge for you. And I'm very serious. I mean, this, this is a good challenge for all of us. And I've been wrestling with this all week. Take out a calendar of this past year. There are 52 days a year that are the Lord's Day. And they have been designated as such since the very beginning of the early church. So take a calendar of this last year and figure out how many Lord's Days you've missed being in church this year because you were out enjoying some activity. I'm not talking about missing church because you were sick 
or recovering from some sickness or because you were working or because you were on vacation. Because the Lord needs, every one of us needs a vacation. So that's not what I'm talking about. But other than those things, how many Lord's Day Sundays have you missed because of pleasure or leisure in whatever form? And then ask yourself, what are your priorities? No one here would think they love money. So here's another challenge for you. Take your W-2 form at the end of the year and look at your gross income. And then look at the amount of your giving to the Lord in your local church. Now let me add, whether you believe the tithe is for today or not, and that's what we teach here at Calvary Chapel, but even for those who do not believe the tithe is for today, those who teach that will also say that 10% is just the starting point that God would not require less of believers today than he would the poorest Israelite, that we are to give as God prospers us, which in many cases would mean giving far more than 10%. You know, I've heard people say, well, we give according to need. Well, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says give according to how God has prospered you, not according to need. Because if you give according to need, you probably... uh, aren't going to give like you should. So look at your yearly income, your giving to the church. Ask yourself why if it's less than a tithe. Ask yourself why if you're a two-income family, you don't even give a tithe on one income. Or for some of you, ask yourself why in years of coming to this church, you've never given to the church or given once or twice. Ask yourself why you don't think you need to give even though the Word of God says otherwise. Ask yourself why it is you continue to justify this. And then ask yourself if it's because you love money. And then ask yourself, if God and the things of God are not a priority in your life, if pleasure is the priority, it takes up a good number of the Lord's days in the year, and your giving is less than what Scripture requires of those who profess to love God, who is it that you really love? Who is it that you really love? Ask yourself who or what is it that I love supremely? Because people can profess one thing, but their lives and their conduct says otherwise. I mean, what are myself and the elders to think of those who are as consistent in being gone as they are being present when the church meets? What are we to think of those whose serving and giving uh, is inconsistent if it exists at all, and is not even close to what the Word of God requires, yet they profess to love Christ supremely. I mean, doesn't that glaring contradiction suggest to you that there's a serious problem? That something is seriously wrong? 
You say, well, I don't have to do any of these things to be a Christian. Oh, that is absolutely right. I could not agree more. Simply doing those things will never make anyone a Christian any more than walking into a garage will make someone a car. Right? But understand this. Understand this. A true Christian will do all of these things out of love and thanksgiving to God for what he has done for us in and through his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember what James said? Faith apart from works is what? Dead. Faith is shown by its activities. James says, look at your works and what do they tell you? about your faith. Well, there's a fundamental difference between the people described in 1 Timothy 3, 1-9 and spirit-indwelled Christians. I mean, we should also remember that Christians can play the hypocrite as well. And so we must avoid practicing our religion without godliness and our faith without works. And honestly, I I wonder often, especially this week, studying this, how it is that people in the church just continue year after year to justify these things in their lives. They continue to profess Christ, but their lives, their, their works, would cause that to come into question. I mean, why is it that people believe they're Christians because they show up at church once in a while? Or they might on rare occasion throw something into the plate. Why is that? Christians can play the hypocrite. So we need to avoid practicing our religion without godliness and our faith without works. Listen, Jesus is merciful to those whose lives are a mess and who admit they need him, and I am so thankful for that. But to those who play the hypocrite, as far as Jesus is concerned, there's nothing but rebuke. There's nothing but rebuke. So this is quite a list, isn't it? I mean, this brutal critique is not Pastor Jim's. This brutal critique, Critique is the Holy Spirit's description of of spiritual reality in many of the fellowships of the early church. These were real people whom Paul knew very well. But it is also a description of what is going on in churches and among professed believers in these last days in which we live. And now, after listing the characteristics of false believers in verse 5, Paul describes their religion. And then at the end of the verse, he instructs how to relate to them. Look at verse 5. There in verse 5, Paul begins by saying, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. What he's telling us basically is they're they're religious but rebellious. They have the appearance, it's morphosis. They have the appearance, the morphosis of godliness. 
You know, Paul uses the same word in Romans chapter 2, verse 20, where he speaks of having the embodiment, the, the morphosis or appearance of knowledge. And these are the only two uses of morphosis in the New Testament. And clearly the meaning of the word here is external form or outward appearance. And so the people Paul speaks of had an appearance of godliness. In other words, they had the outward externals of religion in place. They had, they had all of that down. I mean, they were experts in the externals. And they professed to be servants of Christ. They attended the worship services of the church. They sang the songs and hymns, said the amen to the prayers. They looked and sounded so pious. But it was outward show without any, any inward reality. I mean, it was all show but no go. They had no true faith because they had never experienced the power of God in their lives. They, they only have an outward appearance of godliness, but deny its power, the, the life-giving power of the true gospel. See, theirs was a Christianity without, without Christ, a godliness without God, a spirituality without the Holy Spirit. Well, they were very religious externally. I mean, they could talk it up big time. They could spout off theological truth. But there was no inward reality to it. I mean, it was form without power, outward show without inward reality, empty religion, faith without works, and it's worthless. They made a profession of Christianity, but their actions and their conduct, or by their actions and their conduct, they show that they're living a lie. And there's really no evidence of the power of God in their lives, no real evidence of a love for God and the things of God and the people of God. Oh, there may have been some outward reformation. But there was never inward spiritual regeneration. J.C. Ryle, the great evangelical leader of 100 years ago, understood the reality as few have. And this is what Ryle wrote. Look in another direction at those hundreds of people whose whole religion seems to consist in talk and high profession. They know the theory of the gospel intellectually and profess to delight in evangelical doctrine. They can say much about the soundness of their own views and the darkness of all who disagree with them, but they never get any further. When you examine their inner lives, you find that they know nothing of practical godliness. They are neither truthful, nor charitable, nor humble, nor honest, nor kind-tempered, nor gentle, nor unselfish, nor honorable. What shall we say of these people? They are Christians, no doubt, in name, and yet there is neither substance nor fruit in their Christianity. There is but one thing to be said. They are formal Christians. Their religion is dead. You see, apart from the gospel, people are merely practicing cold, dead religion. That's all it is, apart from Christ. I mean, no Christ, no power. People can go to church their whole life, but if they don't have Christ... They don't possess spiritual life. I've shared with you the story before of the man who was an archbishop in the uh, Church of England. This was back uh, the turn of the last century. Invited a, a visiting missionary to come and speak at his church, and the missionary's message that Sunday morning was, um, unless you repent, you will not see the kingdom of God. And as he was preaching... He pointed at the archbishop who had been in the church for 40 years. 
He said, you can be my friend like the archbishop, but unless you repent and are born again, you will never see heaven. And after the service was over, the archbishop took the missionary into the back room and he broke down and he told him, when you pointed at me and said that, he said, I came to realize that I have never truly been born again. He said, for 40 years I have lived a lie, but today God opened my eyes. So you can be in the church for 40 years or 50 years, longer or less, go through all the motions, profess one thing, but be completely void of spiritual life. Because apart from the gospel, people are merely practicing cold, dead religion. And Paul goes on to say in in verses 6 to 9 that among these people are also false teachers. And he will describe them as men of corrupt minds and a counterfeit faith, men who oppose the truth and, and seek to lead vulnerable, weak people astray. You know, these are the men Paul warned the Ephesian elders about years earlier when he said, from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Those are the men that Paul addresses in verses 6 to 9. So how was Timothy and how are we to relate to such people, these false believers and and false teachers in the church? Well, look what Paul admonishes Timothy in the rest of verse 5. Avoid such people. Or have nothing to do with them. Not that Timothy was to avoid all contact with sinners because Jesus himself had been a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And if Timothy were to not associate with sinners, he'd actually have to leave the world, right? Because we're all sinners. So what does Paul mean? Well, Paul means that within the church, Timothy was to have nothing to do with what might be called religious sinners. Those who call themselves brothers, but who live in sin and defiance of God's word. He says, avoid people like this. And this means that there should be a complete healthy separation from individuals who profess Christ but live lives that deny that reality. We must separate from believers who practice lifestyles like this. And certainly, absolutely, we must first lovingly challenge them, encourage them to repent multiple times according to Matthew 18. But if they continue in, in, rebel, in their rebellious lifestyles, you know, if they refuse to repent, and Paul is telling us we must separate, you know, they, they must be disciplined. And if they still refuse to repent, then they're to be put out of the church. They're to be put out of fellowship, treated as an unbeliever, handed over to Satan. Why do we do this? In order to protect the church and ourselves from corrupt habits but we also do it so that they can be shamed and hopefully repent. 2 Thessalonians 3, 14-15, Paul says, If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Paul wrote to Titus in Titus 3, verses 9-11, to But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned, Paul said, self-condemned. The church does not condemn such people. They are self-condemned by their own actions. 
And all we can do is leave them to the mercy of God and pray that God will bring them to repentance. And if that happens, then it'll be the time for us to speak to them and do our very best to help them back into the paths of God's Word. And that's the whole point of it. The whole point of church discipline is restoration and reconciliation. This whole line of thinking flies in the face of of the push today for ecumenical unity. You know, unity really at all costs, at the sake of truth. But that's not unity. Unity must be based upon the truth, must be based upon the Word of God. I mean, Paul knew that ecumenism would be a characteristic of the last days, and and he warned against them. So, loved ones, uh, the challenges to the church... And to, to true biblical Christianity today are just massive. Massive. I mean, the love of many is growing cold. Fewer and fewer professed believers are attending church. The number of Americans, read this just a couple days ago, The number of Americans who belong to a house of worship has dropped below 50% for the first time since polling began, according to a recent study from Gallup. They said Americans' membership in houses of worship continued to decline last year, dropping below 50% for the first time in Gallup's Gallup's 80-year trend, the polling group discovered. In 2020, 47% of Americans said they belonged to a church, synagogue, or mosque, down from 50% in 2018 and 70% in 1999. But did you catch what they said? Only 47% of Americans said they belonged to a church, a synagogue, or a mosque. That 47% includes all of those. And when they say the church, they're including anything that identifies as a church. So those who attend a church is less, is just a, a, a portion of 47%. We're facing massive challenges. And so we have to be prepared. That's the whole point of Paul's writing. It's why God has given us his word to prepare us. We have to be prepared. What does that look like? Number one, we have to be realists recognizing that the church is in a state of spiritual warfare that's only going to intensify the closer we get to the second coming of Christ. Number two, we must consistently sit under the preaching and teaching of God's Word. In addition to that, we must personally feed upon and study God's Word, not merely for the sake of acquiring more knowledge, but for the sake of drawing near to Christ, that we might know Him in a deeper and more intimate way. And as we feed upon and study God's Word, we must allow it to confront our own sinful thoughts and attitudes, our our sinful words and behavior. And then seek by the grace and strength that God supplies to change. Not just go on continually justifying our sin, continually doing things we know are absolutely contradictory to God's Word. Number three, we must be discerning. 
We must be discerning, testing everything. Every message we hear and every book we read against God's Word, which is the standard. God's Word is the ultimate and final authority. And I will be quite honest with you. A majority of people in churches today cannot do that because they are not discerning. They think they are, but they are not. Because they don't truly know how to take what they hear and compare it to the Word of God. They listen to this guy and go, oh, man, that's really good. Especially if it's a big name. Oh, that's really good. They listen to that guy. Oh, that's great too. But they really have no sense of discernment because discernment does not uh, just, we don't just automatically acquire discernment. You have to train yourself to be discerning. And so we have to be discerning. We must test everything by the Word of God because it, it truly is our rule for faith and practice. It is our ultimate and final authority. Number four, we need to be confident. We need to be confident, always trusting the Lord in everything, knowing that the ultimate outcome is certain and that the victory already belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and one day, he's going to come back, and he is going to set all things in order. He is going to make all things right. And I cannot wait for that day. So the bottom line is simply this. The root of the trouble in times of difficulty is that men are utterly self-centered. Lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And love of self with all of the evils that come out of it shuts out any genuine love for God. And there's only one solution. Only the gospel offers a radical solution to this problem. Because only the gospel promises a new birth or a new creation which involves, as one man said, being turned inside out from self to unself, a real reorientation of mind and conduct and which makes us fundamentally God-centered instead of self-centered. Then he said, when God is first and self is last, we love the world God loves and seek to give and serve like him. And so by the grace and strength that God supplies, we must yield to him all that we are and have, be willing to be used wherever and in whatever way he leads, making sure that we are lovers of God rather than lovers of self, because the great commandment will never change. And the first and great commandment Jesus said is this, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This means with your entire being. And then he said, love your neighbor as yourself. And in the church, we are to love one another as Christ has loved us. Amen. Let's stand and pray.
behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you. Grow.